I tell you, this is an awesome day again to welcome a guest that um, I've tried a number of times to get with us when we were in the high school. We did a marriage theme, and then we tried to get Dr. Chapman, but his schedule is full and overflowing, but we are blessed to have him finally with us today. He has authored over 20 books. He has been at his current church. Not only is he uh, speak around the world in marriage seminars, one-day seminars, and so forth, but he also still serves on staff at Calvary Baptist Church since 1971. But his greatest claim to fame is his, his marriage, and that's what he's come to speak on. He's been married for over 40 years uh, to Carolyn, and I appreciate Carolyn and Calvary Baptist for sharing him with us today. Let's give Dr. Chapman a warm Northwest Arkansas welcome. Dr. Chapman, would you come, please? Well, thank you, Mike. Let me tell you up front what I hope is going to happen. My first desire is that your relationships will get better. Would that be all right? How many of you are married? How many of you have children? How many of you have or have had parents? Yeah, I thought so. Well, I'm hoping that your family relationships are going to get better because we spend a little time together this morning and tonight. You know, relationships either get better or they get worse. They never stand still. And I certainly hope that your relationships won't get worse because I came. I hope they'll get better. My second desire is that you will learn some things that you will find so helpful that you will want to share them with your friends who are not here today, won't be here tonight, but desperately need help. You know the people I'm talking about? And my third desire is that we can have a little fun while we do this. Now, I meet people who don't believe in fun. You talk about fun and they say, oh, no, I'm a Christian. Now, this morning... I want to talk to you on the topic of five signs of a healthy family. You know, we've heard a lot over the last 10, 15 years about dysfunctional families. In fact, we've heard so much about dysfunctional families that almost everyone that comes into my office thinks they grew up in one. In fact, they often start off that way. They say, Dr. Chapman, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. Well, you know, if you continue to look at dysfunctional families, you're likely to become one. Now, what I want to talk about is not the dysfunctional family. I want to talk about the functional family. What does a healthy family look like? If you understand what a healthy family looks like, you're more likely to create one. So I'm going to invite your attention to Ephesians chapter 5. For some people, this is a very familiar passage. In fact, it's so familiar that they read it very speedily and uh, they miss the point. And there are other people who have read this and they have their own ideas about what this means uh, and they've been uh, trying to apply that in their marriages and families and it hasn't worked very well because a a lot of misinterpretations of this passage. But I want you to listen to it because it's talking about the family. The whole thing's on the family. This is Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, And he begins in verse uh, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And he's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, 
and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. What is the promise? That it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, I want to draw five uh, observations from that passage. I'm going to suggest that you jot these five things down because uh, this afternoon I'm going to encourage you to take a little test, uh, a self-test when you get home on these five things, okay? Number one, in a healthy family, there will be an attitude of service. There will be an attitude of service. Now, look at the words that describe the various people in the family. Verse 22, wives submit. Verse 25, husbands love. Chapter 6, verse 1, children obey. Chapter 6, verse 4, fathers instruct. Every one of those words require an attitude of service. In fact, he starts off the whole thing in verse 21 by saying, we're to submit ourselves one to another. You see, a lot of people have read this, and they've concluded that submission is a female word. Submission is not a female word. Submission is a Christian word. He lays down the principle we are to be submitted to each other. And then he gives two illustrations. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Both of those require an attitude of serving the other person. And really, I think this is central to the Christian life. You know, it's rather hard to reject service in a family. I remember the young uh, husband who said to me, you know, Dr. Chapman, right after we got married, he said, my wife, for the first six weeks of our marriage, she, she would make, get up and make breakfast and bring it to me in bed. He said, it took me a month to get up the courage to tell her that I don't eat breakfast. You know, it's hard to reject service. I did a little survey some years ago and found out that not a single wife in the history of this nation has ever murdered her husband while he was washing the dishes. Not one. It's hard to reject service. You see, service is really the heart of, of marriage and family life. In fact, if you don't want to serve another person, then please don't get married. And I can tell you that by nature, this is not who we are. By nature, we want people to serve us. By nature, we want them to do things for us. But in a healthy family, the husband will be serving his wife. She will be serving him. They will be serving the children. And pretty soon, the children start serving the parents. And then the whole family is serving outside the family. That, that's, that's the sign of a healthy family. Imagine what would happen in the church if all the church was filled with families who had that attitude. Whoo! Now, I'm going to give you some ideas on how to build this into your, into your family. Let me give you a couple of games you can play with your family. First game is what I call, I really appreciate that. And here's the way you play the game. One family member says to another family member, one thing I did for you today is, or one way in which I served you today is, and the other, and the other family member says, I really appreciate that. Now, uh, let's just try that. Maybe you're not even with your family, but maybe you are. Why don't one of you turn to the other and say, one way that I served you this morning is, and tell them something you did for them this morning. And the other one says, I really appreciate that. Okay, just give it a try. If you're by yourself, think, think, what did you do to serve someone this morning, okay? All right, it's feeling better already, isn't it? Now, second little game. Second little game uh, is, is you say to a family member, do you know what I would like? And then you tell them something you would like, and they say, I'll try to remember that. Now, they're not promising to do it. I mean, that would be manipulation if everything you say, you know, I wish you'd do, they have to do. No, no, you're just giving them information. 
if you ever wanted to do something for me, here's something I would really like. And the other person says, I'll try to remember that. Now, can you imagine getting this going in the family, playing this little game two or three times a week? Now, let me give you another, another approach, taking it beyond the family. And that is you have a little daily sharing time in which everybody in the family gets to share with the family one way in which they served someone outside the family today. So little Johnny gets to say, well, one thing I did is Mary, Mary, Mary's pencil fell off and it broke and I sharpened her pencil for her and gave it back to her. And the rest of the family says, Yay! And then Susie gets to share something and Daddy gets to share something and Mama gets to share something. Everybody gets to cheer. You understand what we're doing? We're saying to each other in our family, serving others is important. And then a fourth idea is you can, uh, you can have a family project where the whole family goes and serves somebody else. I remember that one of the things our kids really loved to do when they were growing up, we would get our rakes and put them in the back of the car, and we would drive through the neighborhood and just find a yard in the fall where the leaves had not been raked. And I would knock on the door and say, uh, would you mind? I said, I'm, 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 I'm with my family, and I said, our kids, and I said, we, we're like to do uh, service projects for people. And I noticed your leaves uh, need raking. Would you, would you allow us to rake your leaves for you this afternoon or this morning? You know, I never had a single person who said no. Never had a single person who said no. Sometimes they said, say what? And I'd get to tell them again what we were wanting to do. But our kids love that. They love going out and doing things for other people. Now, can you just imagine if you could get this moving in your family, how it would change the whole attitude of your family? If you're just, you begin to think about how you can serve each other and, and life every day is filled with ideas on how you can serve each other in the family. In a healthy family, that's really what it looks like. Now you see, for Christians, here's the Christian perspective on, on this whole thing. Colossians chapter 3 verse 23 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, you do it all like you were doing it for Jesus because he's the one who gives you the ultimate reward. So when I'm, when I'm cleaning the commode for my wife, I'm really cleaning it for Jesus. I, I'm expecting, you know, he's going to give me more reward than she is, you know. But so, so, you, you do it, so it takes it to another whole level. Not only are you serving your family, but when you serve your family, you're also serving God. You remember what Jesus said? He said, in the Gentile world, the leaders, the great people, are the ones who tell others what to do. But it will never be that way in my kingdom. In my kingdom, the leader will be the servant. And the greatest leader will be the greatest servant. And then he said, Even as I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. He's our example. So when you're building this into your family, you're following the example of Jesus. Second characteristic of a healthy family. There will be intimacy between the husband and wife. In a healthy family, there will always be intimacy between the husband and wife. Notice what, what verse 31 says. That for this cause, he's going to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. You know, that's taken directly from the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, remember God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for this guy to be alone the word means cut off, isolated. And then God's answer, he created Eve, he instituted marriage, and he said the two will become one. It's the opposite of aloneness. It's deep, deep intimacy. That's God's intention for marriage. And in a healthy marriage, that's what it will look like. Now, on a daily basis, how would you identify this? How would you know if you had an intimate marriage? Well, let me just share some areas in which we would be sharing life. Uh, first of all, we would be sharing intellectual intimacy. We'd be talking to each other about the things that are going on in life. We'd be sharing with each other. Did you, did you see this on TV the other day? Or did you read, you know, I read this in the paper today. Or I saw this in a magazine today. Or Mary told me this today. We, we're sharing ideas and thoughts with each other. In a healthy marriage, there will be intellectual sharing. Secondly, there will be emotional intimacy. 
will be sharing on an emotional level with each other. Husband will be saying to the wife, you know, I just I feel kind of down today, to be honest with you. And the wife will not come back and say, oh, I feel down. What do you feel down about, man? How could you feel down after all the things I do for you? No, no, no. She said, honey, tell me about it. Tell me about it. So he just shares kind of how he's feeling today, and she shares how she's feeling. It Maybe he's feeling positive, but we share those positive things, and the kids get a chance to share. We don't talk each other out of our feelings. We just share our feelings with each other. And, and, and this is where the whole idea of emotional love comes into play between the husband and wife. And we're going to talk about that at uh, 5 o'clock tonight when I talk about the five love languages. How do you keep emotional love alive in the relationship? And then there's social intimacy. We do things together. We, 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 uh, we may be planning a garden together, or we may even go shopping together. Not necessarily. You don't, have, you don't have to go shopping to have a good marriage, but you're doing some things together. In fact, if you came, if you came here together today, if you're, if you're with your spouse, you, you are developing social intimacy. You're doing something together with, with other people. You're interacting socially with other people, but the two of you are a unit. The two of you are together. Social intimacy. Uh, did you hear the story about the Midwestern uh, farmer where the, the tornado came through and it lifted the roof right off the house? And, and the couple were, were in bed, and it lifted the bed with the couple right out of the top of the house and planted them in the field right beside the house. And the wife was just crying hysterically. And the husband said, honey, it's okay, it's okay, we're on the ground, honey, we're safe, we're safe. And she said, I'm not crying because I'm afraid, I'm crying because I'm happy. This is the first time we've been out of the house together in six months. <laughs> well, I want to ask you, how long has it been since you've been out of the house together, done something together? In a healthy marriage, there's going to be social intimacy, and then there will be spiritual intimacy. You'll be sharing your, your, your spiritual journey together. Uh, how do you do that? Well, one way, you're doing it this morning. If you came together, you're sharing some spiritual experiences this morning. And that, that's one way we build spiritual intimacies. We share life together. You know, there's something about standing there and, and, and listening to your husband or wife sing that just does something for your intimacy, even if they're off-key. Even if they miss the words, it's still you're hearing them express something out of their heart to God. Uh, and then we also build spiritual intimacy by praying together. You know what I've discovered? That not more than 15% of Christian couples pray together on a daily basis. If you don't count, giving thanks for the food. Now I'm going to teach you an easy way to pray together. I'll guarantee you the most timid soul among us can do this without trauma. It's called silent prayer. Whew. Sounds easy already, doesn't it? Now here's the way you do it. The two of you hold hands. You close your eyes. You pray silently. And when you get through, you say amen so they'll know you're through. And you hang on until they say amen. Now, is there anybody here that thinks you couldn't handle that? I tell you what, let's just practice the mechanics. If you're here with your spouse, reach over and hold hands. If you're here by yourself, hold your own hand. Yeah. Okay, so far so good. Then we would close our eyes. Then we would pray silently. Then we would say amen out loud. Okay, let's try the amen one more time. Here we go. Everybody together, amen. You did it! Now, I want to challenge you, beginning tonight, to pray with each other every night. It doesn't have to be at night. You can do it during the daytime. But now, if you happen to get to bed tonight, and, and one of you remembers you haven't done this assignment that I'm giving you, I want you to reach over and say, Ooh, we forgot. And when you get through praying, you say amen, and you hang on until they say amen. Now, if they start snoring before they say amen, don't wake them up. They just forgot the amen. But if you start praying together silently every night, you'll see a whole new dimension begin to develop 
in your relationship because you're sharing life spiritually. You see, you can't come to God together every night and it not begin to affect the way you talk to each other and the way you treat each other. So in a healthy marriage, there will be those. And then there will also be physical intimacy, which is what we're going to talk about tonight in our second session, the whole physical aspect, the sexual aspect of the relationship. So in a healthy marriage, there will always be intimacy between the husband and wife. It won't be two people just living in the same house. There will be intimacy in that relationship. Third characteristic of a healthy family. Parents will teach and train the children. Notice these words in, uh, in chapter 6 of Ephesians in verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, it's interesting to me that when he gives this little warning about not exasperating your children, he addresses it to fathers. I don't know if we're more guilty of that than the mothers or not. But what he's saying is, fathers, don't just keep pressing your kids and pressing your kids and pressing your kids until they exasperate, until they just feel like I can't ever please my daddy. See, I can't tell you how many teenagers have said that to me through the years. I don't ever do anything right, or I can't please my father. You see, they felt so much pressure from their father. You know, guys, some of us are so driven to be successful and we want our kids to be successful that we drive them and we really are driving them beyond what they're capable of doing sometimes. And the warning is don't do that. But then the positive side is, is what I'm focusing on here. We're to, we're to teach them and we're to train them. It's interesting that in the King James these words... Uh, that are here translated training and instruction. Uh, they're, they're the words, remember this in the King James, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we say, what's that talking about? <laughs> well, the word nurture is the word paideia, which means basically training by actions. And the word admonition is the word nuthesia, which means literally putting into the mind. The emphasis is on words. And so that's why this translation says we're to, we're to bring them up in training, which emphasizes actions, and instruction, which emphasizes words, of the Lord. That is, the principles that God has laid out for us in the Scripture, we are to be teaching those things to our children by words and by actions. And these things must always go together. You see, one of the problems in contemporary parenting is that we lean in one, or one of these directions and go off to the extreme. Uh, for example, there are parents who, ha who, who basically focus on words. Their whole philosophy of parenting is if you simply will explain it to a child, then the child will do what is right. And so their whole emphasis is, well, now let's just take time, let's just explain it to the child. But if you explain it to the child and the child doesn't do it, what are you likely to do? Explain it again. And if they don't respond, what do you do? You explain it again with a louder voice. And before long, you're explaining it with a loud voice to the child, and you are physically abusing the child. On the other hand, there are parents who go to the other extreme. Their emphasis is on actions. And so their whole approach is, you know, do it now. We'll talk about it later. And if you don't do it now, then I'm going to make you do it now. And physically, they make the child do that. And what happens to those parents? they end up physically abusing the child. Now, neither one of those extremes are the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is you bring those two things together. And if you bring them together, words and actions, you are far less likely to go off the track and do something that you will later regret doing with your children. May I illustrate? How many of you have experienced this? You, you mothers. You're getting dinner ready, and Johnny's playing in the yard. And so you go outside, and you say, Johnny, dinner! And you go back to finish dinner, and Johnny keeps playing. And then about three or four minutes later, you go back to the door, and you say, Johnny, dinner! And you go back and continue working on dinner, and little Johnny keeps playing. 
And this scenario goes on one, two, three, four times. But the fifth time you go to the door, you say, Johnny, get home. And little Johnny comes home. Now, why did Johnny come home on number five? But he didn't come home on number one, two, three, and four. Because Johnny has learned from experience that if he doesn't come home when Mama says, Johnny, get home, that Mama will come down in the neighborhood and take his hand and see that he goes home. And Johnny doesn't want Mama in the neighborhood. So Johnny comes home on number five because he knows that Mama's going to put actions with number five. But number one through three and four, he's safe. Now, it's okay with me if you want to call your child five times for dinner. That's all right with me if that's what you want. But if you would rather Johnny come home on number one or number two, all you have to do is put the action that you normally put with number five, you put it with number one or number two, and Johnny will start coming home on number one or number two because Johnny knows that that will happen. Now, please tell Johnny you're going to change the paradigm don't, don't, don't pull it on him. Just tell him, I went to church today, got a new idea. From now on, you come home the first time I'll call you or I will come down and get you. Okay, so let's just make sure we know that. And little Johnny will come home on the first time. I'm telling you, kids will do when you put words and actions together. I remember E.V. Hill, black pastor from Watts area, California, in heaven now. But he tells the story in his own life when he was 13 years old. He said, I went out with some guys one night, and they, they started drinking, and, they, and they, they gave me a beer. For the first time in my life, he said, I drank a beer. And then he said, they brought on the liquor. And he said, I tried that. And he said, before the evening was over, I was totally drunk, 13 years old. He said, I went home, and I was so drunk that I, ended up, I threw up on the, on the floor in my bedroom. He said, my mother came in, and she smelled me, and she knew what the deal was. He said, mother, just closed the door. But the next morning, he said, about 6 o'clock, mama was in the room. said, Evie, should get out of bed and clean up this mess on the floor. Get yourself a shower. You and I are going to take a trip. He said, mama, I don't want to take a trip. She said, Evie, I did not ask you if you wanted to take a trip. I told you. We are taking a trip. Now get out of bed and clean this mess up. Get yourself a shower. So he said, I got out of bed and I cleaned up the mess. He said, it was awful. He said, I took a shower. He said, Mom and I walked out the door. I said, where are we going, Mom? She said, you find out when we get there. He said, we got on the subway. We traveled for a little while. We got off the subway. We started walking down the street. He said, I didn't know where we were. He said, but we were on Skid Road. He said, my mother went down every Thursday and cooked at the rescue mission. And he said, here we were walking down Skid Row. And he said, all the men knew Mama. He said, all the men would say, hey, Mama Hill, what you doing down here so early this morning? And she said, this is E.V., my son. He wants to live down here. I brought him down to see what it's like. E.V. said, I walked with Mama all day long on Skid Row. He said, that night we went to the rescue mission. He said, I went in, I ate with the men. You know, I went in the room where they spray the clothes, you know, to kill the bugs. He said, I went through the whole thing. He said, never drank another drop of alcohol in my life. You understand what she was doing? She was bringing actions and words together. You know, she could give him a lecture that day. She could give him a long lecture. But what she did... She brought some actions and words together, and E.V. got the message. You understand? This is the pattern. You use words, and you use actions, and you do those things together, and your children are far more likely to do what you're trying to teach them to do. Fourth characteristic of a healthy family. The husbands will be loving leaders. When you look at the words in this passage that, that describe the husband's role, Look, look at the words. It says in verse 23, he's the head, he's the savior. Verse 25 through 28 says he's to love his wife as Christ loved the church and give himself for her. 
Verse 29 says he's to feed and care for her, nourish and cherish, which means feeding and caring for. Verse 31 says he's to leave his parents so he'll have time to do this. And then chapter 6, verse 4 says he's to lead the children or teach the children. All of those words have to do with taking initiative. That's what leadership is. It's taking initiative to serve others. In a, in a healthy family, the husband will be a loving leader. You see, part of the problem we have in the Christian church is that so many people have gone outside the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so when this passage says the husband is the head of the wife, they say, that's right. That's right, a man, the head of the wife. He said, it's like he is the president and she is the vice president. Or if they're military, they say, he is the general. You don't get that in the Bible. It says he is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. That's the model, not military, not business, Christ. Well, what did the head do? The head gave his life for the church. He took the initiative to reach out and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He paid the full penalty of our wrongdoing when he died on the cross so that we could be forgiven by a just God and, and God could still be just and forgive us because Christ paid the penalty. He took the initiative to look out for our well-being. That is what the husband is to be doing. And that's why I'm using the words loving leader. Don't ever separate those two words. In a healthy family, the husband will take the initiative to look out for the benefit of his wife. And he will do that whatever it takes. All the way to death. Because that's our model. Christ went all the way to death in serving the church. And so in a healthy family, the husband will take the, lead, will take the initiative to reach out to love his wife. Now, may I just be honest with you and say, this does not come natural. May I, may I be personal and just, just tell you my own story? I remember before we got married, I could hardly wait to be as happy as I was going to be. I dreamed about how happy this woman was going to make me. But six months after we were married, I was more miserable than I had been my whole life. Unfortunately, our marriage didn't turn around overnight. I don't know if they had marriage counselors back then, but I never heard of a marriage counselor. I don't know if they had books on marriage back then, but nobody ever gave us a book on marriage. Everybody said to us, you know, if you're a Christian and you're in love, you're going to be happy. Well, we were Christians and we were in love, at least before we got married, we were in love. There was no magic wand waved in our marriage. In fact, things got worse instead of better. And... To make it even worse, I was in seminary studying to be a pastor. Two weeks after we got married, I enrolled in seminary. And here I am studying to be a pastor and can't get it together with my wife. And I'm saying to God, this is not going to work. There's no way I can be this miserable at home and get up and preach hope to people. Well, the closer I got to graduation, the more desperate I got. And I remember the day that I said to God, Lord, I don't know what else to do. I've done everything I know to do, and it's not getting any better. In fact, if anything, it's getting worse, and I don't know what else to do. As soon as I prayed that prayer, there came to my mind a visual image of Jesus on his knees washing the feet of his followers. Do you remember that 
that account. And it was like God said to me, that's the problem with your marriage. You don't have that attitude towards your wife. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I remembered what Jesus said when he stood up. Remember after he washed their feet, he stood up and said, in the Gentile world, the leader will be dominant, but never in my kingdom. In my kingdom, the leader will be the servant. And he was illustrating it. He was doing what a servant did in that culture. And I knew that was not my attitude. You see, my attitude in the early years of our marriage had been something like this. Look, woman, I know how to have a good marriage. If you'll listen to me, we'll have one. And she wouldn't listen to me. And I blamed her because of our poor marriage. But that day I got a different message. It's not her problem. It's your problem. Because you don't have that attitude toward her. And I said to God, Lord, forgive me. With all of my study of Greek and Hebrew and theology, I missed the whole thing. And then I said, Give me the attitude of Christ toward my wife. In retrospect, it's the greatest prayer I ever prayed about my marriage because God changed my heart. And he gave me that attitude of serving my wife. I'll tell you the three questions. These are not on the screen, but I'll give you the three questions that made this practical for me. They're simple questions. When I was willing to ask these three questions, my marriage radically changed. Question number one. Honey, what could I do to help you? What could I do to help you? Question number two. How could I make your life easier? How could I make your life easier? Question number three. How could I be a better husband to you? How could I be a better husband to you? Do you know when I was willing to ask those three questions, my wife was willing to give me an answer. Mm-hmm, she told me. Incidentally, she had no interest in my washing her feet, but she had a lot of other good ideas. And when I let her teach me how to serve her, do you know what happened? Not overnight, but do you know what happened? Within two or three months, she started asking me those three questions. We've been walking this road a long time in which I've been reaching out to her and she's been reaching out to me. In fact, I told her the other day, I said, you know, Carolyn, if every woman in the world was like you, there would never be a divorce. I mean, why would a man leave a woman who's doing everything she can to help him? And my goal through these years has been to so serve my wife that when I'm gone, she'll never find another man to treat her the way I've treated her. The woman's going to miss me. And you know what I believe? I believe this is God's plan, that a husband will take the initiative to give his life away for his wife. She will take the initiative then to give her life away for him. And what happens? You both become winners. You see, in all those early years, we were both losers. I mean, I shot her, she shot me. We stayed wounded most of the time. But when we finally got it together, what happens? You find what God intended marriage to be. Husband and wife, loving, supporting, encouraging each other. Then the two of you can turn and bless the world with all the abilities God has given you. And gentlemen, what I'm saying is, what this passage teaches is that we are to take the initiative in that process. Not wait for our wives to do that. We're to take the initiative. And you know what I've found? There are very few wives who will run away from a man who's doing all he can to help her. I'm not saying there are no wives that will do that. I'm just saying there are very few wives that will run away from a man who takes the initiative to be a loving leader and reaches out to serve her. Most wives will reciprocate. And what happens? You find what God intended marriage to be. Number five, fifth characteristic of a healthy family. The children will obey 
and honor their parents. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children are to obey their parents, for this is right. Obedience is not a bad word. Obedience is a healthy word. You know, in most cases, the parents are older than the children. In most cases. And, And with advanced age, often there's advanced wisdom. That is, parents have more wisdom than children. God designed it that way. And, and obedience implies respect. It teaches children how to respect. You know one of the greatest problems we have in the public school today? Discipline. In fact, many teachers tell me I have to spend so much time trying to discipline the children, I don't get around to teaching the children. Why do you think that happens? Because in the home, we never taught children how to obey. And consequently, they don't respect older people and people in places of authority like teachers. It also teaches responsibility. Obedience teaches the concept of responsibility. You know, we've got a lot of younger people who don't have a sense of responsibility. I have employers tell me, you know, it's hard to get people that will take responsibility at work anymore. They work unless they want to go fishing. Or they work unless they've got something better to do. It's it's the lack of responsibility. Obedience teaches that. And obedience teaches character. It builds character into the life of the child. I I mean, you know, look at the adults that you really respect. And they are people who take responsibility. They're people who are are people of integrity. You can count on them them to do the things they say they'll do. You see, rules are a necessary part of life. Rules are not bad for us. Rules are good for us. In fact, the Bible is filled with rules. Old Testament, New Testament. God says, do this and don't do this. Do this and don't do this. And every rule God has ever given is for our good. And if you don't do the things that God says don't do and you do the things that God says do, you'll have the best possible life because God gave us those rules because he loved us. And as parents, we create rules in the family because we love our children and we want them to grow up to be responsible adults. Three-year-olds should not be running households. It's Sunday morning. You've got a three-year-old daughter. And mommy or daddy says, honey, let's go to church. Time to put your dress on. And the three-year-old says, no. Oh, honey, grandmother gave you this dress. No. Oh, honey, look at the pretty ducky-wuckies. No. How do you get a dress on a three-year-old? You stuff her in it. It's not that hard. There's two holes for the arms and one for the head. It doesn't take long to put a dress on a three-year-old, but I've known, I've known adults who take five or ten minutes to get a dress on a three-year-old. You see, we have to understand, we are in the place of authority in the family. Children are to be, are to be obeying parents. So how do you teach obedience? Let me give you three guidelines. We teach obedience by our model, by the way we obey the laws that we live by. It's 11 o'clock at night. You're driving down the road. Your 10-year-old son is in the back seat. Maybe he's in the front seat. You come to the traffic light. It says no left turn. But it's 11 o'clock. There's no traffic anywhere. If you don't turn left here, you've got to go two blocks and make a U-turn where you... What are you going to do? If you turn left, you say to your son, you don't have to obey the rules if there's nobody watching. If you go straight and drive the two blocks, your son says, why didn't you turn back there, Dad? No, there was nobody coming, nobody coming. And you say, son, it doesn't matter whether there's anybody coming. We obey the rules. And it said no left turn. And you're teaching your child obedience by your model. And every time you disobey the laws under which you live, you teach your children that in some cases it's all right to disobey the law. And every time you obey the law, you teach them obedience. So our model. Secondly, we teach them obedience by letting them suffer the consequences of their wrong behavior. 
me give you a little New Testament verse. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says, If a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Do you think that would be a good principle to teach a child? Hmm? Well, how do, you, how do you teach a child that principle? First of all, you share the principle. You know, uh, here, here's the deal in our family. Everybody works and everybody gets to eat. But if we don't work, we don't get to eat. You know, Daddy works and Daddy eats. Mama works and Mama eats. So you have a job, and you give them a job appropriate to their age. And then you say, now, if you don't get your job done before dinner, you don't get to eat that night. Or if you want to start off light, you can just say you don't get to eat dessert that night. Be, be, be easy on the first one maybe, okay? You don't get to eat that night, okay? So uh, you, you, little Johnny's job is to, is to clean his room, okay? And he knows exactly what that means. And you have to explain what that means because he doesn't know unless you tell him what it means to clean his room. Now, you don't go back in there 15 minutes before dinner and say, Johnny, only got 15 minutes, boy, you better get your room clean. Look, you've already told him the rule. You've already told him the consequences. Leave the kid alone. He's smart. So he doesn't get his job done. He comes to the table and there's no plate for him. Where's my plate? Remember, Johnny, the rule? If you don't work, you don't eat. And you didn't do your job, son. Oh, Mama, I'm hungry. I bet you are, son. And if you work, you always get to eat. Listen to me, folks. A kid will not die from missing one meal, but a kid will learn how to obey by missing one meal. Are you with me? It's just that simple. You let them suffer the consequences. I have watched, I have watched parents who have just let kids do whatever, whenever, never have any consequences. Then they get to be teenagers, and they get in trouble with the law, and they're breaking, you know, and, and they're in jail now, Over, and they go down, and now they bail them out of jail. And they spend their whole life bailing kids out. If you start young and let them suffer the consequences, they learn obedience. Somewhere along the line, you have to start that. If you haven't done it, then it's time to sit your teenager down and say, you know, new day in our house. Next time you break the law, next time you do what's wrong, I'm not going to bail you out. You're going to have to suffer the consequences because I want you to be a man. I want you to be a woman. I want you to learn responsibility. This is the way it's going to be from now on, and the child will learn. So we teach them obedience by letting them suffer the consequences. Number three, we teach them obedience by rewarding obedience. Now, some people say to me, well, Gary, I don't, I don't like that, and I don't think you ought to reward a child for doing right. Well, God does. Listen to this verse. It's Psalm chapter 19, verse 11. The psalmist says, By them, that is by, by God's commands, by God's rules, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Listen, if you obey the laws of God, there's a reward that comes with that. If you disobey the, the, the rules of God, then there's consequences to be suffered. I mean, that's the way God operates because God is just and God is loving, and he's our model in terms of our children. Now, please notice that obedience comes before honor. If you don't teach your children to obey, they may never honor you. And honor is caught more than taught. You don't teach children really very much about honor verbally. They catch it by watching the way you honor your parents. You know, my mother is 97. She still lives in her house, but we have sitters that stay with her. But I go down every week. She's about an hour from where I live. I go down every week. I, I take care of all the sitters, but I go down every week, and I take Mom out to lunch, and I spend some time with Mama. And I make sure that my kids know what I'm doing. Because when I get to be 97, <laughs> I just want them to have a model, you know, that you, you go see your parents regularly. So how do you honor your parents? Well, it depends on where they are. If they're in town, it may be by visits. It may be by doing things for them. If they're out of town, it may be by sending them letters or calling or, or sending things to them or whatever. But you, you honor your parents, and you're teaching your children how to honor you. We do that by giving words of affirmation 
We do that by acts of kindness and so forth. Well, let's, let's summarize it. Let's put it all up there. Here are the five, and here is the assignment that I want you to have this afternoon, okay? Most of you have written these down already. Let's go ahead and put all five of them up there. An attitude of service, intimacy between the husband and wife, <coughs> parents who teach and train using words and actions, husbands who are loving leaders <coughs> taking the initiative to look out for the wife, and children who obey and honor the parents. Now, here's the assignment. This afternoon, I want to suggest that you go home and individually, and you can even let the children do that if they're here. You can let your teenagers do that if they're here. Let everybody rate your family on a scale of 0 to 10. How well are we doing with an attitude of service in our family, 0 to 10? Just rate the whole family, 0 to 10. 10 means we're doing super well, 0 no good at all. And then, then rank the marriage on the intimacy between the husband and wife. Let the children rank you. Let them, let them say what they observe about you, what kind of intimacy you have. And then parents who teach and train the children, how well are we doing? Zero to ten. Husbands who are loving leaders, zero to ten. Husband, rate yourself and let all the other family rate you. And then children who obey and honor parents. Then you sit down with a whole family, when you get a chance, either this afternoon or, or, or one day this week, and everybody gets to share what number they gave the family on that particular item and why. And here you are now talking about our family and where are the areas that we need to grow. And I, I suggest you just pick one of them and say, well, here's one that I'd like to work on. And, and the child may be working on something different from the husband or wife, but here's one that I would like to work on in my life. And together, we can continue to create a healthy family. And imagine what the world would be like if our churches were filled with healthy families who then spilled out to the non-Christian world and gave them models of what we've been talking about. So this is not a little thing we're talking about today. This is a huge thing that will greatly impact the kingdom of God and influence our culture for good. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for the opportunity of spending a few minutes together this morning and tonight. I pray that your spirit would be active among us because we know that we not only need the truth, but we need help. We need your help to change our attitude, to change our desires, and to do the things that we already know we need to be doing. And so I pray you'll take what we've shared today as a seed and that you'll flesh it out in the lives of every family who's here. And may we not blame other family members, but may we look at ourselves and may we take steps in your direction. May our lives be different because we came to church today. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.